Hi, this is the Room Now podcast for the 8th of March, 2019. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week on our podcast, what's your go-to drug for heel pain? Breastfeeding and rheumatoid arthritis, does it happen? How often? And lastly, could I possibly give you five new pearls about leflunamide that you've never heard of before? You know a lot about leflunamide, but maybe I could tell you more. At the top of the news, uh, an interesting review of shoulder replacement surgery. This is a fairly large cohort that looked at a large number of shoulder replacements. You know, I, I, I've always been reared with the success of hip and knee surgery. And then really in the last 15 years, I've been convinced that shoulder replacement surgery is a very viable option for a lot of patients with a great deal of success. And I've sort of been talking them up to some patients. I'm not really wild about ankle replacements and I'm not really even uh, recommending uh, MCP replacements, but certainly hip and knee and now shoulder. Surely, well, why not? Well, this interesting review came out showing that it's not quite as great as you might think. It turns out that while the risks are low as far as uh, the risk of revision, meaning failure of the implant, it's very low in older women. It's actually quite high, maybe 3%. Uh, it's quite high in men in their 50s and 60s, approaching 1 in 5, uh, 23%. The revision rate was highest uh, really in the first five years. And um, it turns out really in the first 90 days, the uh, serious adverse events are not uh, minimal. They're actually only about 5%. But if you look at elderly people in that first 90 days, it can go as high as 21%. Pulmonary embolism risk was significantly higher 61-fold higher in women, 50 to 64. So again, this is a good procedure. It has generally good outcomes, but you do need to know that there is a risk of failure. There is a risk of thromboembolic events. There is a risk of SAEs. Uh, I think I may have tweeted this or reported this before, but I wasn't sure, so I'm reporting it again. What is the, the odds that a, the paternal exposure to a biologic or DMARD has a significant impact on the outcome of the offspring. And, and having been on the recent uh, ACR Reproductive Guidelines Committee, and you'll see those recommendations coming out in the next month or two, it's gonna be astounding. It's a lot of information. And we say what this paper says, which is paternal use of DMARDs and exposure um, of, the, of, of the mother to a father who's on a DMARD or a biologic has no impact on the outcome of either fertility or the pregnancy outcome. We do know that cyclophosphamide and sulpazalazine are known to cause oligospermia. It is generally not regarded a safe move to use a cytotoxic in the father, but honestly, there's not um, a bad data about that other than sperm counts uh, and maybe sperm damage, but there are no major reports of major malformations. So drugs like abatacept, rituximab, azathioprine, cyclosporin, hydroxychloroquine, methotrexate, leflunamide, and even mycophenolate um, in the father is probably fine um, when it comes to the offspring and fertility. Remember, mycophenolate is a big, big no-no. It's probably our biggest... Uh, teratogen of the drugs we use, so they cannot be exposed to mycophenolate. I know you all know about methotrexate and leflunamide. Uh, another interesting study came out about aspirin this week. I don't know if you're watching the aspirin data, but you know the idea of using daily aspirin, every other day aspirin, low-dose aspirin, turns out to not be as protective as you would think, and as mainly has its advantages in those who are at risk. 
So, you know, routine use by everybody as you get older, probably not a great idea because there's more risk of bleeding events than actual protection from thrombotic events. An interesting study of almost 6,000, 7,000 AFib patients on warfarin. No arthritis here. This is a cardiology study. Uh, and it turns out that more than a third of them were on aspirin. When they looked at those who were on aspirin plus warfarin, there was actually significantly more bleeding, 26 versus 20%, more major bleeding, 6 versus 3%, and more ER visits, but they had no difference in thrombosis rates, meaning there was no protective benefit to the aspirin when added to warfarin. This sometimes comes up in patients, in our patients, who have antiphospholipid syndrome and people are waffling on what to use because they can't use this or that because of money or toxicity or whatever. But basically, if you're on uh, Coumadin, warfarin, adding aspirin to it only increases risk. Claims data from the uh, Taiwanese Health Insurance Database looked at a large cohort of JIA patients to answer the question, do JIA patients, when they grow up, get adult autoimmune disease? Uh, and so they looked throughout their whole data set. Um, they narrowed it down to 262 patients who they followed longitudinally uh, and basically showed that there's a 30-fold higher risk of autoimmune disease uh, when they become an adult. Uh, the hazard ratio uh, was 129-fold for RA, meaning the JIAs that grow up can more likely become RA, not surprising. You know, we know that the JIAs who have the greatest chance of going into remission are the palsies, um, especially the young palsies and ones who have one or two joints. Um, but if they have polyarticular disease, seropositive disease, you know, then they have a high chance of progressing on. The hazard ratio there was, um, again, really high. The hazard ratio for developing lupus, also high, 10. Um, the hazard ratio for, um, let me see here, for... Um, Ankylosing spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis also very high, you know, 8 to 40 or something like that. The highest risk um, was seen really in the, those who had a JIA onset at, between the ages of 11 and 12. So later onset patients were more likely to progress and have autoimmune disease going forward. Uh, speaking of kids, there's a famous study being done in Europe called the Paris study. It's been following um, almost 250 pregnancies uh, conceived Pro, and, and will follow prospectively uh, from 2002 to 2008. And they, uh, the more, most recent report looked at breastfeeding. It turns out that um, in RA, the rates of breastfeeding are actually quite low. Uh, so these are RA patients who become pregnant and deliver. When they look at them four to six months later, only 43% are still breastfeeding. When they look at uh, 12 months later, uh, 26% and 20, I'm sorry, four to six weeks, it's only 43% not months. Four to six weeks, it's only 43%. So at, at, at 12 weeks, three months, it's only 26%. And at, at uh, um, one year, it's only 9%. And that's, those numbers are much, much lower compared to normal controls um, who at you know four to six weeks, it should be two-thirds. And at 12 weeks, it should be a half, etc. So it turns out that many of these patients are discontinuing um, uh, breastfeeding really because they want to start a medicine to control their rheumatoid arthritis. Again, the particulars of activity and whatnot weren't spelled out in this paper. There's a nice report coming from Creaky Joints. As you know, Creaky Joints is a, a patient-focused organization. They put out a lot of good information for patients. They've done a survey of their patients uh, asking them, what do you think your doctors need to know? So what are the top 20 things your rheumatologist needs to know? Here's a few of them. One, fix the vocabulary. 
You can't talk, you know, like they just got their PhD and MD from Harvard. You got to speak at the level they're going to understand. Two, don't rush me. You're rushed, but they don't have to be. You know, they're a little overwhelmed. Three, don't sugarcoat it, uh, meaning when you're giving them a new diagnosis or new therapy, they often think we tend to sugarcoat things. Four, give them some good information on a realistic diet that may help them. Five, listen to me. We keep talking about that. Six, don't judge me. That's a big problem. I think in, in our attempt to be authoritative, sometimes we can come off as judgmental, especially when patients don't follow your advice. Seven, flares may last longer than you think, uh, meaning I think in general, in rheumatology and RA especially, we have a really bad set of plans for flare management. What's your plan? Steroids. What's your plan after that? Often not, not a lot. Number eight, and the last one I'm going to say is do a mental health checkup, meaning that, that they feel that their mental health is often overlooked. You can go to the, the website, click on this link, and, and see the, uh, uh, the original source material from Creaky Joints. Um, this week I did a QD clinic that got a lot of play, a lot of clicks. Um, the QD clinics, as you know, as you might know, are daily videos I'm putting out on patients I see and teaching points that I think we should discuss uh, they're short. You can see them either on Twitter or you can see them on the website. They put, we put them in the email. This week, we put out one on five pearls on leflinamide. I'll give you the quick overview. One, the dose that you can use can be either, what, 20 or 100 milligrams. Uh, and 100 milligrams, you say, yes, the drug has a really long half-life, and you can get away with 100 milligrams once a week. Two, the drug is uricosuric, meaning that those patients who you see who may have a question of gout, may have hyperuricemia, maybe uh, leflunamide might be the good drug for the RA patient with hyperuricemia. Three, the package insert says you must do PPD screening or TB screening. Yes, they're at risk when they're taking leflunamide. Four, um, the, we detail the washout regimens. There's a, an 11-day washout for a complete washout for people who get pregnant or in severe toxicity or people want to get pregnant. And then there's more of an abbreviated short five-day washout using cholestyramine um, TID uh, for five days. But again, go to the QD video to see more. And lastly, um, it's a pre it's a, used to be a category X drug in pregnancy. Well, the data in pregnancy is not so bad for those who conceive of a baby while taking leflinamide. Um, a few more reports. A study of almost uh, 2,400 patients with fibromyalgia showed that the mean time from their initial complaint to diagnosis was, what do you think? Actually, more than six years, 6.5 years. Um, factors that were associated with a longer time to diagnosis included comorbidity, being younger, the older physician age, meaning you're not recognizing it often enough if you're old like me, meaning you've got gray hair, white hair, and you're thinking about retirement, um, no, I'm not going to retire. Um, but again, there's a significant delay in uh, the diagnosis of fibromyalgia. Another interesting report came uh, from the UK on a study of the referral of new RA patients to the rheumatologist. They studied 822 patients. They came from a number of different uh, uh, national health trust services throughout the UK and uh, Great Britain and Scotland. Um, they followed these patients. Some of them came with a diagnosis of RA. Some had inflammatory or undiagnosed uh, arthritis. Um, it turns out that the time from symptom complaint to a, a consult with the rheumatologist was 27 weeks. Um, shockingly, patients generally had four GP visits before they were referred. Also shocking is that only 20% were referred within the first three months of their, of their illness or complaints. Um, 
so where is the delay? It turns out the patient is responsible for delay for up to 5.4 weeks, that the practitioner is responsible for the delay in um, almost seven weeks, and the hospital, when the hospital's involved, is involved in delay for about five weeks. So the idea is we all share in the blame. There's a general letdown. I know that there's a big push for early diagnosis, early referral, early aggressive therapy, and we think we're doing better. And there have been a few reports that suggest that. My experience is that no, it's very uncommon for me to see an RA patient, new inflammatory RA, um, in, with less than four weeks of symptoms. Many of them are coming from primary care. Many of them are still delayed. We need to do better. Um, biologic agents can be used to manage the psoriatic arthritis. We know that. How good are they at managing enthesitis associated with PSA? Well, this particular report compared um, uh, a TNF inhibitor to the other drugs approved for use in psoriatic arthritis, namely the IL-17 inhibitor, secukinumab, and ixekizumab, and the IL-1223 inhibitor, uh, ustekinumab. And it turns out that when you compare across the board looking at resolution of enthesitis, resolution of, of, of dactylitis, that these drugs are all equally as equal in efficacy as is the TNF inhibitors, which you probably have a lot more experience with. Uh, and this is taken from a meta-analysis of multiple studies. Um, and again, they're also uh, equal as far as their ACR20 outcomes. Lastly, a report on lupus. Um, the goal in lupus is low or no disease activity. Here's a nice report um, that shows you when you achieve low disease activity as measured by an LL-DAS, um, the low lupus disease activity score, um, that you actually have less damage from lupus and actually better survival um, in those patients. The LL-DAS is defined as a SLEDI2K of less than four uh, with no other major organ involvement. Um, the second would be no new features of lupus disease activity. Third would be a prednisone or prednisolone dose of less than seven and a half milligrams per day. And lastly, those patients should be well-maintained on a standard dose of an immunosuppressive. 206 patients followed for um, over 10 years, 22% of them had died. It turns out that three quarters of the cohort actually achieved an LL-DAS at some point during the study. About a third of them spent uh, at least half their time in LL-DAS. And it's that third, that 33% uh, were the ones, when you look at them, they actually had less um, severe damage and better survival um, when followed out longitudinally. So the good news for those of you who are doing a good job in managing lupus. Uh, that's it for this week at Room Now. Go to the website, see more about these reports and others. Check out roomnow.live. It's not too late to register. It's going to be a fabulous meeting on March 22 through 24.